Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. If you're a pro, you know that this is not efficient because you know there's a better way. There's also a better way to save. When pro customers buy building supplies in bulk at Lowe's, they save up to 20% every day. Buy in bulk and save up to 20% on concrete, gypsum, and gypsum accessories. At Lowe's, buy more, save more. Visit the Pro Desk or Lowe'sForPros.com for details. Discount applies to contractor pack items. Minimum purchase required, U.S. only. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So what are our top lines today? It's crazy town. It is crazy (laughs) town. So Margie, you may have heard there's this thing that's going to happen next week. It's called the Iowa caucuses. I think it rings a bell. (laughs) It's kind of a big... It's kind of a big deal. Uh, so we are going to spend most of the show today talking about what is going on in Iowa. Is Bernie Sanders catching and passing Hillary Clinton? Is this real? And on the Republican side, in the two-man death match between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, who will prevail? We'll or also will we take, all lose? <laughs> or will we all lose? We'll also take a look at polling in New Hampshire, what the contests look like beyond these early states, looking at national polls. We'll do an interview with Gallup's Frank Newport to talk to him about what's going on in the industry and how Gallup is approaching this presidential cycle. And then we'll take a look at some polls about where people know the names of CEOs, what passwords people tend to use, and whether or not they're actually secure. Spoiler alert, they're not. Uh, And what people think of as the greatest inventions of the 21st century. I'll give you a hint. Only 1% of people say selfie sticks are the greatest invention. (laughs) Maybe Kristen was a respondent in that survey. Um, So, But before we get to any of that, we have very important breaking polling news, and that is it it comes from the file of correlation does not mean causation. That I say the number of the week is seven. That's the percentage of moderate drinkers who are depressed currently. That's lower than heavy drinkers. It's lower than non-drinkers. And even better news, Moderate drinking is defined quite broadly here between 1 and 14 drinks a week. This comes from Gallup. This is not sponsored by, you know, an alcohol seller. Two glasses of wine a day, I guess you still count as a moderate drinker. Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. And if you ask Gallup... Yes, but if you ask other folks, you know. For some reason, two glasses of wine a day doesn't sound that bad. But if I was like two vodka shots a day. Right. That would sound bad. And technically, those both count as the same amount of drinks. That's right. It doesn't break into that kind of detail, but it does show whether you're looking at the amount of happiness you had in the last day or whether you've ever been depressed or if you're depressed currently by all those measures. Consistently, moderate drinkers are just ranking a little bit better. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're a non-drinker, you should just go right now to the cabinet and (laughs) pour yourself a glass. Certainly not if you're driving um, because, again, correlation doesn't mean causation. It's a very fun joke we like to say as pollsters. Uh, So now let's go ahead and dig into the big story, Iowa. Yes. There is no other story, basically. There really is no other story. Iowa is less than a week away. We're going to talk about these other fun things at the end of the podcast. But really, right. this is the big the big show. This is the moment we've been waiting for when we've spent the last year looking at polls telling us how people might vote. Right. It's so exciting that people are actually about to vote. That's right. I know. It is really. We get to find out who's right and who's wrong. I know. Next episode, we are going to be talking about which pollsters got it right, which pollsters got it wrong, and why. I know. This is like, I think it was Amy Walter at Cook Political Report who said this is like Christmas Eve, and it's like. There are presents under the tree, and those presents are 
the returns in the Iowa caucuses. And it's like, I can't wait to open them. I yeah. can't wait to see what's inside. I know. I was thinking about that, too. It's like 10 o'clock at night. Like, you're almost there. Like, you just have to hold out a little bit, a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, it's it's and there's so much news i mean you have so many candidates trying to pull out all the stops new endorsements new ways of contrasting you know new field operations new ads new spending it's really gotten incredibly uh, incredibly heated new polling it's almost impossible to keep up really i mean as i as we're working on the script you get, like new polls come out like between the time you start working on and like it's the blizzard time you wake up and the time you get to the office there's still more polls coming out i mean that's how crazy it is so what's going on on the republican side i mean you know the polls don't seem quite so volatile i, mean, I think there's a sense that people are coming to terms with candidate trump what do you think so that really is kind of the theme you've we I've joked before about the stages of depression or the stages of grief, and I think a lot of Republicans are now coming to acceptance for Donald Trump, that he is not only clearly ahead in New Hampshire, which we'll get to in a second, but in Iowa, he has begun to increase his share over Ted Cruz. A week or two ago, we were looking at polls showing Cruz really surging, holding Donald Trump on the ropes. The polls have now broken away. And it's fascinating. I mean, this comes on the heels of Donald Trump finally turning his fire on Ted Cruz, doing the whole Canadian birther mm-hmm. thing, trying to raise doubts about Ted Cruz's you know, ability to beat Hillary Clinton. Oh, if he winds up tied up in courts, I'm not saying I'm going to sue him. I'm just the Democrats saying, are going to sue him. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just putting it out there. Well, something's happening because all of a sudden Ted Cruz is no longer consistently the favorite in these polls. Now, do you think – well, there's a couple other things that could be right. It could be that the Sarah Palin endorsement, that could have had some kind of effect. No, you're looking at me like – It could have, although I, I still suspect – I mean if you looked at polls of Sarah Palin's favorables among Republicans, she wasn't – she's sort of become irrelevant. I yeah. mean it was hard to find any polling data about her at all because she hasn't been – tested in national polls in forever because she hasn't been relevant in a while. So in a way, I almost feel like she benefited more. She got back on Saturday Night Live. You know, she had to hitch her star to the Trump wagon. To become relevant again. But but of course, you know, he's just got the endorsement of Jerry Falwell Jr., which, you know, people have long I have long said, look, Trump's base is not evangelical voters. Cruz has that locked up. Trump has tried to go speak at Liberty University, et cetera, et cetera, trying to make inroads there with this Cruz constituency. But really, again, what this all comes down to is, is Trump going to turn out these low propensity right. voters? Yeah, That's, we've talked about that. Uh, yeah, we've show. talked about that a million times. And that is still the unanswered question that these polls do not answer, because consistently these polls are defining likely voter in a way that is too broad. Yep. Or potentially too Not too broad. broad, right? Just, you know, you can't take people, you can't add people, you don't survey after the fact. So you want to overestimate a little bit so you can examine different models. Jenna Jesta from CNN, right. one of our early guests on the show, wrote about this because their CNN poll shows a much tighter race in Iowa if um, if they just look at past caucus goers. It's also true on the Democratic side. It makes a big difference. And this is uh, seems to be a lot more true in Iowa than in New Hampshire. And you have the caucus being, you know, maybe perhaps a little bit unpredictable in terms of its format. Um, you know, you also have, too, a lot of Republicans seemingly lining up behind Trump. I don't know if it's because they dislike Cruz. You had Grassley, Senator Grassley from Iowa, going to an event with Trump saying he wasn't there to endorse. He was there against Clinton, which is, seems a little too cute by half. Um, you have the baseball player John Rocker and Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Arizona, both kind of notorious figures in sort of mini Trump ways lining up for Trump. I don't know. But that's not, We won't see the effect of that in the polls now. But does that play a role? Does it look like there are – People now galvanizing behind Trump. Didn't Bob Dole say something nice about yeah, so Trump there's, too? There is a, a phenomenon sweeping the Republican Party and I have seen it described on Twitter as CDS, Cruz Derangement Syndrome. <laughs> if you find yourself supporting Trump for more than 15 minutes, call a doctor. Uh, that it's <laughs> that there are people in, in the Republican Party apparatus – again, this term establishment I think gets thrown around a lot and it's grouping a lot of people together who don't all agree. But generally – Republican donors, Republican Party operatives have started trying to decide, Okay, if this really is Cruz versus Trump, who is better? And folks like Bob Dole, folks like Trent Lott, folks that kind of work on K Street or are the like old guard, you know, guardians of the GOP. 
um, people who, if you ask them, are you a Republican first or a conservative first? Republican is what comes first. They're the ones who right. are more going, you know what? Trump may be a crazy person, but I could deal with Trump. Like he I I could he could sit down at the negotiating table with me and we could we could make a deal. Whereas they view Cruz, Cruz is loved by people who, if you ask them, are you a Republican or a conservative? They say, I'm a conservative first. Right. And I'm only a Republican insofar as Republican represents conservative ideas. Those are the people that say Trump is a no-go. This is the whole national review against Trump issue that came out last week. You know, people who say we are the guardians of conservative ideas. Trump is a no-go. He doesn't represent us. I would much rather have Cruz. But Cruz has just ticked off so many people inside D.C. because of shutting down the government for his own political gain on this fruitless tilting at windmills quest to defund Obamacare. Right. That, that's why he's made enemies with people who just feel he's unacceptable to represent the party. Yeah. This is the, this is the fun on my side. And we haven't even talked about the fact that in two nights – or one – is it tomorrow night? Yes. Tomorrow night. Fox News is going to do their debate and Trump is not going to show up because <laughs> Donald Trump versus Megyn Kelly is a thing again. I know. Didn't somebody say – somebody said this on Twitter like they should have like a chicken play the role of Trump and if somebody says his name, the chicken should just squawk or something. <laughs> you know, Roger Ailes is a genius at the art of fabulously compelling television. So I cannot wait to see what they do with this. Yeah. Well, I'm team Megyn Kelly on this on this one. On I this am one. too. She also looks fabulous on the cover of Vanity Fair this month. I know, like I'm, I'm like I shouldn't be going into the physical appearance of people, but she's like, got lots of strengths. Oh my gosh, she looks like Grace Kelly. She's gorgeous. Um, it's a great so, cover. so in Iowa, it's not just the Republican side that's exciting. It's the Democratic side. You may remember a couple weeks ago, I called it Snoozeville, and I was proven wrong very quickly. The week later, it is definitely. Not Snoozeville for, again, um, where the race is, on the Democratic side between Clinton and Sanders has narrowed dramatically from being, you know, a double digit spread to being essentially tied 46. You know, now it's 46 46. When I looked at this last night or early this morning on the Huffington Post pollster average, it was 46 44. I'm seeing now for the first time that it's 46 46. Yeah. So that just right. ARG and um, and the Quinnipiac poll also yeah. that came out in, like this morning. So that's really changed dramatically. And, uh, y- you know, that's uh, you see, you know, there was a town hall on CNN a couple days ago. You saw the president in a podcast. We should add uh, talk about how he feels about uh, Secretary Clinton. Um, you see a lot of folks out on the ground for both candidates, endorsements coming down for Clinton. Um, and we can talk about this both for the Democratic side and the Republican side. What goes into these projections or thoughts, of the conventional wisdom, right? Because the polling averages are the polling averages. The Huffington Post pollster average is just what the polls show. And they make, you know, they have criteria what we include and what we don't include. But they don't include anything that's not a poll. But then other places like predictive markets where people can go and Either I guess they can't use real money or maybe some can use real money, some they use fake money, actually bet for and against different candidates. And that's an actual market that su- supposedly is better at predicting, people say, the outcome because people are using all kinds of things to make their determination. Yeah, it's the, – the one question is whether these predictive markets are – are they any better than the conventional wisdom or is it just the conventional wisdom reflected – Numerically, um, right. the, you know, I, when I took a look at the prediction markets yesterday, um, predicted uh, they had Trump having a 67 percent chance to win Iowa and an 82 percent chance to win New Hampshire. Cruz had a 33 percent chance to win Iowa and a six percent chance in New Hampshire. Um, Hillary Clinton had a 60 percent chance to win Iowa with Bernie Sanders at 43 percent. But again, this was yesterday. Now with the new polls out, this can change. Um, I feel like if I was a buying – if I was participating, I might buy – I might buy Cruz at 33. Right. I might. Because right. I, Cause he's got on the ground and this turnout operation piece is just kind of unknowable. Right. I, I feel like 33 is undervaluing Cruz's potential in, in Iowa at this point. But, but you know, this is fascinating and you've got 538 where they – you can look at the polling average but you can also look at like polling averages plus endorsements right. where they have tried to factor in – what they think endorsements mean based on what endorsements have meant in the past. Right. So but, but the challenge is, I mean, Slate had a great article about like why – how Nate Silver has gotten it so wrong. Because Nate Silver up until this point, he continues to sort 
until very recently has been the like, everybody calm down. Trump's not really a thing. This is going to go away. And I sympathize with that because that was my – Everybody – we all wanted to believe. Oh, my gosh. You guys heard me say this on the show, which, side note, I'm going on Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday. And so I went back and rewatched my appearance from last summer and it was painful for me to watch because I was so wrong. You think he's going to Tim Russer you? Like, Kristen, last year you know you what? said – no. I expect I, – I don't think so. <laughs> show this, I mean, show I like a blue screen it. with they your pull quote. But, so I, on the show, I got two things very wrong. One, I was like, no, Trump's going to fade. This is all just name ID. And even most Republicans don't like him. This is going to go away. So those those clips are totally wrong. What I did get right was I said if he surges and where he's getting his support is blue-collar workers or blue-collar re- white Republican voters – and people who are don't look like typical Republican voters. So half of my prediction turned out to be right, but the other half was just so disastrously wrong, and I was so certain of it. Yeah, that it is just like hard for me to watch. But alas, uh, you are not alone. But so you know, the the idea is that Nate Silver has been based, you know, basing his thoughts on you know the party decides this theory in political science that basically says party elders and establishment have to be okay with you in order but to win the nomination. Bush would be. You know, at the top of the peak. Well, it doesn't say that the party chooses who wins. It's that you have to at least be acceptable to the party elders in order to win. Um, But this slate piece that was really good sort of digs into how that even kind of falls apart and how you can have your blinders on so much if you're based on past precedent that you miss when these weird black swan moments Donald Trump being the black swan right. occur. Right. It's I mean it's it's pretty fascinating. And also obviously the view from DC is different. Folks talking about the races in DC and again that's us, right? We should make it clear we're not experiencing what's going on on the ground, right? So folks on the ground, you know, the field operations that we're talking about that are so important, that's something that you can just see reported. The other thing that people don't necessarily you can't really get from the endorsement piece is the effect of the advertising. And a lot of times when folks cover political ads, they're not necessarily looking at the buy, how heavy it is. And by the buy, we mean how many ads are actually on the air, how much is being spent, where is it being spent, who's it being targeted to. There are a couple places you can go for that. Uh, CMAG, Cantor Media, K-A-N-T-A-R. We'll link to it in our show notes. My firm has a tool that does that. Oh, you are Insights from- on Air. We do. Oh, I wasn't good. coming on to planning to plug it. But no, yeah, if you want well. that data, Echelon Insights, Insights on Air dashboard. Oh, we, okay. we pull in all that stuff. Oh, good, good, all, good. We take all these PDFs that these local stations put out that say, like, who bought what and when and, like, oh, that's good. make it machine readable. and Because it's yeah. public information, mm-hmm. but... Uh, candidates don't tell you what their buy is. So if you want the buy, you have to watch it. So what the campaigns do, they watch each other's buys. They call the stations. They try to figure it out. The stations want you to think, you know, it's getting hot. You got to start acting now and put and spend more money. So uh, that's something that the campaigns do, but it's not always something that the press does. So frequently you'll see, you know, like for example, Right to Rise, the super PAC affi- you know, affiliated with Jeb Bush, they've been doing a lot of advertising. You don't necessarily see that covered. Um, it's unclear, you know, it's not getting covered sort of uh, to reflect how much is being spent on it. Sometimes all campaigns will put out an ad that they don't actually really want to see anybody to see. It's something to get coverage and they'll put out you know, an ad that maybe will be watched like a few times, but they'll send it to reporters and it'll get covered. And that campaigns do that all the time. Um, but one ad made a lot of news over yeah, the past week. And so <laughs> I think we should talk about it a little bit if I could. If this is a bit of a digression. And this is, you know, I disclose sometimes on the show, um, my husband's on the media team for the Sanders campaign. And what does that mean exam- exactly? Well, it means that his firm did the ad called America, uh, set to the tune of uh, Simon and Garfunkel's song, America. Which I have been listening to on repeat for the last couple of days. It's, it's a like nice stuck song. in my head. It's a good song. It's a good song. And so I have a little, like, I could tell a little bit about the story story of the making of the America ad that you probably won't hear or see anywhere for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, first of all, I should describe it for folks who haven't seen it. it there's no, there are no words to it. It's just America and it's just a scene of, um, you know, of slices of life, right? Rural cities and so on, small towns, I should say. And then building the excitement of the Sanders campaign, people excited to see the Sanders, you know, see Senator Sanders and his wife. And it builds to this crescendo of these giant you know, huge crowds, which he's had in a, in a lot of cities. So that, as the song builds, that's what happens. And the big refrain is, they've all come to look for America. Right. 
It's positive. It's uplifting. Yeah. And it's unique in that it doesn't have any words. It's not like, here's my five-point plan, which, you know, lots of candidates do. It's not to disparage that kind of ad. But that this ad is unique and that it has no words at all. So the here's the story behind it, right? The story behind it is they had heard that um, Simon and Garfunkel were fans of Senator Sanders. So that was, you know, that pre that predated this. And so they were trying to figure out, well, what song would make sense? And do is it something we use for the bio intro or do we use it toward the end? And the song is so strong. The lyrics are so strong. It's tough to make it work with a bio ad where you want to also communicate a bio spot, meaning here's who Senator Sanders is. All candidates have some sort of bio type ad. Um, So it's hard to kind of put those two things together. So they saved it for something closer to the caucus day. And, um, and so, you know, it, it's uh, part of the, you know, part of it is not just making the ad, but also then getting approval from Simon and Garfunkel themselves. So you have to show them the ad and make sure that they say, okay, that's good, which, um, which they did. And you saw Simon and Garfunkel on, C- I mean, Garfunkel on CNN uh, a couple days ago talking about being a Bernie fan. Um, and they knew it was, exce- you know, it's a great song and they were pleased with the ad and, and uh, S- uh, Senator Sanders was excited about the ad. Um, and, you know, you just don't plan for something to go that viral, though. Like, nobody really thinks you're going to have, like, three million views of your ad in, like, a couple days and have it be played all day as it was on all the news outlets. So that was something that was truly exciting. I have another friend who's a media consultant who says when people um, come to him, like, hey, I want a viral ad. He says, well, are you a cat flushing a toilet? <laughs> <laughs> Because the joke being, you, you can't know, just make a viral ad, right? You can't predict. I mean, if you go to the folks at BuzzFeed, we've had folks from BuzzFeed come here, and they say, like, okay, we have some ideas of how things go viral because we study it and we can time it. But even there, you still don't. It's not like you know what will hit and what won't beforehand. Yeah. So, um, so nobody really expects their ad to just kind of go mega viral like this. So that was something that I think um, was was super exciting. I feel like it must be fun to work for a political candidate who has the support of artists, celebrities, where, like, you can tap into that sort of thing. Like, now there's a Ben & Jerry's flavor yeah. out there, Bernie's Yearning, which, I will be honest, does not taste, sound like it. I, I'm not a mint ice cream person. I'm not a mint ice cream I, person. It's yet. like, I, if I want to eat toothpaste, I'll eat toothpaste. But there are lots of people that like it. And there's now this Bernie's Yearning flavor, which is mint ice cream, and the top of it has, like, a chocolate coating to represent, like, the 1% is the chocolate coating, yeah. and the 99% is the mint. Right. Anyhow, you have to break the chocolate and redistribute it with the mint. That's the goal. That's, like, how you're supposed to eat the ice cream, I think. <laughs> break the 1%. Yeah. Oh, my God. But they are Vermont, or they are originally a Vermont company. They're now, I think, owned by a Unilever or something. But, you know, yeah, I had a Republican colleague tell me the same thing. Like, God, I wish we had, you know, anthems we like that. We never get anything from We like, get Kid yeah, Rock. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. Lee, Lee Greenwood. <laughs> yeah, like you know, Clint Eastwood talking to a chair. Yeah. Like every so often, we we get one. But <laughs> well, Rob Lowe, I think you know he's now I think Republican leaning, and he's he went he, he did he tweeted out like a scene from The West Wing last yeah. night about Sam Seaborn yeah. like talking about how you can't just tax the rich to get to equality, and he tweeted it out, and of course I retweeted it because I was like I love you, Rob Lowe. But yeah, the idea of Rob Lowe even being kind of Republican leaning is like. This is intriguing to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, you should read but, one of his two autobiographies. That they're they're very entertaining. So anyway, so that's a little behind the scenes of the America ad, and I guess the that ad actually is on the air. It's not like a like oh, it's on the air once and let's talk about it. it's actually on you know on the air. So the question is, do ads like this do they make a difference? Do they change the race? Do they change the dynamic? Um, is it something that we just like to talk about here, or is it something that makes a different for uh, difference to voters? So these are things we don't know, but you know it's, it's interesting to discuss. Yeah, and this is there's this whole other world of political. I don't even know if I want to call it opinion research, but communications research, where you do like randomized control trials and you have like a control group or a control market and a test market and you see, okay, we just run an ad in a test market and not a control market. We see, okay, did we get a bounce in right. one market but not the other? I, sometimes I think harder to do with TV ads where you're just sort of putting it on the airwaves instead of like a mail piece or a phone thing. But that's that's sort of at this point the best way to try to build causality. Like, but But nonetheless, I suspect if you put this ad on the air and then all of a sudden Bernie Sanders' numbers go up, again, correlation is not causation. But you're probably, you know, 
you're better off having ads that everybody thinks are cool than right. not having ads that everybody thinks right, are cool. Right, right. And it's, you know, it's reflecting the enthusiasm on the ground if you, you know, watch that. But, uh, you know, to be fair, the Clinton ads also have very, uh, you know, I like the new Clinton ad where you see her speeches kind of stitched together over the years, for example, talking about her dedication to children. And you could make a new speech out of the last couple decades of speeches, which I thought was compelling. Um, so anyway, everybody's got cool ads. Um, I'm pr- particularly proud of my husband and his partners for that one because that was a pretty cool viral thing. But we'll link to it also uh, in the show notes as we always do. So final 2016 talk is that the big moment we're all waiting for, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, final Ann Selzer poll comes out. Final Des Moines Register Bloomberg poll. What's going on in Iowa? She is the oracle. She is the one that has is considered the gold standard. So, like, set an alarm on your phone, folks, if you're really a junkie about this stuff. 6.30 p.m. on Saturday. That's right. That's the big show. That's right. That's right. So thanks so much, Frank Newport from Gallup. We're so happy that you could join us today. And, in fact, your, your podcast is one of the first podcasts Kristen ever listened to. That's right. Uh, so back in 2006, I would take the metro uh, from my apartment in Roslyn to my, my job downtown in D.C. And I would always listen to uh, – I forget the name of the podcast, but it was it was like the Gallup – it was either daily or weekly and you would have like a number that was, was interesting. And I that was the first podcast I ever subscribed to. So this is uh, this is very exciting to finally have you on this show. You're kind of like our podfather. Well, that's great. Glad to be with you. And you have a great voice for radio. So not every pollster has that. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so and we're, this is the only uh, show, to our knowledge, that exclusively covers polling. So uh, we're really excited that you could come on. Excellent. If, well, polling is my life, you know. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to get your, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit for some of our listeners who may not know the history of Gallup, George Gallup, and what else Gallup does besides all of the generous public data that you guys release at your website. Uh, the company was founded by Dr. George Gallup, who was actually, had a Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Iowa, but was actually working in industry. He worked at an ad agency in Manhattan, uh, Ogilvy Advertising, and he did basically marketing research, motivation research for business and industry. And as a sideline, uh, he started in the mid-1930s doing uh, public opinion polling. But he actually continued to commute into New York even after he became famous for his polling until he finally gave it up and just focused on uh, what came to be known as the Gallup poll. So he's always straddled um, what I might call you know, more academic interest in public opinion polling and the business side. And his company uh, continued to work and derive most of its revenue from work for business, movie industry. Gallup did a lot of work for Disney. They used to do cue scores for uh, movie actors and actresses and so forth. Uh, George Gallup Jr. was a friend of mine until he died in, in uh, 20, a great friend of mine until he unfortunately passed away in 2011, told me he used to grow up with Loretta Young and Walt Disney as friends because they were always visiting his father. So. Uh, at any rate, he died, uh, Dr. Gallup died in 84. Uh, the company was uh, purchased from the family a few years later by an organization uh, founded by a professor at the University of Nebraska uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, and that's the current uh, Gallup. And Gallup continues that same tradition. Almost all of our revenues, um, not all, but a good proportion of our revenues come from our work for business and industry, employee engagement research, customer satisfaction research. And we do a lot of work around the world polling, and those data are valuable, and we can work with people to have access to those data as well. So that's where we stand overall as a company. So the Gallup poll is sort of the public-facing uh aspect of it and and sort of the there's a I was fascinated when I went to the Gallup website the first time and discovered that there was this whole other layer of the consulting business and things like that that sort of enables you all to do the really great public facing work that you do. Um, I'm interested in, in finding out more about sort of how you're thinking about the Gallup poll and where it fits in this 2016 election cycle. Um, as our listeners may know, because we've talked about it before, you know, after the 2012 election, you all did a really in-depth analysis about, you know, what's going on in the industry. How do we get polling to become more accurate, better ways to understand who is and is not going to vote? And so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how Gallup, the Gallup poll plans to approach this presidential election. 
yes, we, we did do that and, of course, presented the results to anybody who was interested and discussed them at APOR and a variety of things like that after 2012. Um, we are still, as an organization, very much uh, committed to trying to understand what's going on in the election and in the election environment, um, as was Dr. Gallup, because that's a very important contribution that we think we can make. But as you noted, and many people have noted, we clearly made a decision in this election to pivot away from uh, expending a huge amount of our resources on tracking the horse race. Um, you know, several reasons went into that, but one was a simple uh, examination of where we could contribute the most. Now, I'm not opposed to the horse race component of election polling. And sometimes people call me up and say, how come you're not uh, doing anything relating to the election? And I say, we are. We're actually focusing on it a lot. We're just not spending a lot of time uh, trying to prognosticate who's ahead or who's going to win. Uh, we feel that we can contribute in this environment uh, by focusing on some of our other strengths, which are understanding people's perceptions of the economy, uh, their overall perceptions of the mood and attitudes of where they are, uh, people's priorities, uh, where they stand to the issues, how people are reacting to candidate proposals, and, and uh, some reasons why they're reacting like they do to the candidates themselves, uh, rather than uh, simply saying this is the latest uh, horse race number. So that's that's the broad consideration thinking this year. Frank, I want to ask you, you know, whenever we have folks on this show, we always love to hear their story of how they got into this industry in the first place. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit about how you came to be editor-in-chief of the Gallup Poll. Well, that's a fascinating question. Could take an hour, right? <laughs> Everybody likes to... Everybody likes to talk about their autobiography. True. Um, uh, the long and short of it is I've always had an interest. I, I've had an interest in media and broadcasting, which I did actually earlier in my career, but I also had a parallel interest in human behavior and uh, human social behavior, and I, I gravitated towards the academic field of sociology um, and went off and got my Ph.D. from the University of Michigan in sociology and actually started teaching in that academic field at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, but um, became, I might say, bored after a while with the academic life. I have a lot of respect for academics, but that didn't look like it was the best fit with, uh, with myself. So I shifted back over for a time period to uh, broadcasting, yeah, that's an interesting story in and of itself. But from there, I morphed into working uh, and became a partner in a marketing research firm in Houston. The firm actually was purchased by a firm that uh, the firm in Lincoln, Nebraska, that uh, that purchased Gallup. So I was uh, grandfathered in, as it were, to that organization, which has been great. And from there, uh, thereafter, after a while, I was asked to take my combination of uh, skills and strengths and become editor-in-chief of the Gallup Poll, and I moved to Princeton, and that's where I am now. And that's actually where I grew up, in fact, at, right outside of Princeton. Princeton Junction, the kind of, you know, step-sibling step of Princeton. That's right. Well, <laughs> it's a great area, although we just did some research state-by-state. State. Uh, would you leave, if you could, in New Jersey and Connecticut or the top two states where people say they would out-migrate if they could, and that's primarily because of the onerous taxes and so forth. Wow. Ah. But I, we like it. Uh, I like it here. I think this part of New Jersey is great, despite the onerous taxes. <laughs> I don't have as, as close a connection, but my parents grew up right across the river in, like, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, so they, you know, not – we, not too far a drive from, from where you guys are. Very yeah. similar culturally, for sure. Um, Except they have lower taxes. So I, I, <laughs> some of our friends and neighbors migrate across to Delaware uh, to, to lower their tax bill. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things that you guys have been tracking at Gallup that I – refer to frequently is this increasing worry that government is dysfunctional, that even transcends party lines. It beats out a lot of other priorities people might have. And obviously, people haven't historically thought Congress is doing a great job or giving them a pat on the back, but it does really seem to be getting worse. Is that something that you have noticed? Does it worry you? And what's your sense of how important that'll be in this election? Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I make a speech, I point out that I think that uh, is one of the major trends that we've seen in uh, what we monitor in American public opinion in, in the recent decade. You know, other trends have been the rapid change in attitudes as an example towards same-sex marriage um, and legalization of marijuana. But the other major trend has been the decrease to record levels in many instances across a variety of our indicators of confidence in, faith in, positive attitudes toward the government. Uh, we spend a lot of time trying to understand that, 
In fact, we just did some pilot testing where we were asking Americans in their own words open-endedly to talk about negatives, and I've never seen such full and robust and rich open-ends. Wow. In other words, people have a lot to say. Uh, you know, our interviewers have to shut them up if you tap them, tap into that. So I think that's a very, very important uh, trend in our culture. Uh, as you hinted at, or in usual circumstances, for example, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and maybe the founders set it up that way, there's a tension or dynamic. Uh, they recognize people would always be arguing, and they set up Congress to be a place for arguing, and therefore it may not have been intended to be loved by everybody, but these uh, current readings are at record low. And I think it's very significant. I happen to think that's probably the, the fundamental factor of our uh, campaign 2016. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's pretty facile to say that's why Donald Trump's doing well, but uh, I think it is true that his uh, complete uh, obliteration of the usual norms of how politicians operate and what they say and all that has struck a nerve where people say, good, you know, a lot of the traditional ways of operating need to be uh, blown up uh, and changed, and certainly Trump has, has spilled into that. Uh, my concern, or I guess my point would be that there are extremes on this. If you read through very carefully, as an example, Cruz's uh, policy statements, what he would do if president. You see this very extreme uh, relationship to government where he says, well, it's simple. We'd shut down five departments, over 22 agencies. Um, Trump and Jeb Bush both have said for any one new government employee hired, you have three more. So that's a very extreme position on government on that side, you know, just shut it down, essentially. Close down the IRS, right? Well, that's easy to say, but impossible to do, of course. But on the other side, you've got Bernie Sanders, who has a love and great faith in government. He says, yeah, that's great. The government can solve all our problems. Uh, no hint that government might not be able to do the long list of things he wanted to do to address uh, what he perceives to be our big problems of inequality and distribution of income and wealth. So clearly there there's, needs to be a position in the middle where people consider carefully where government's needed and what it should be doing, what it shouldn't be doing, and to address this issue that Reagan and Clinton and Al Gore and all these people have addressed previously, which is uh, how to make it operate more efficiently. Right. And what's your take, uh, just to wrap up, this is one of the questions we hear about uh, from a lot of listeners that we talk about regularly on the show. How do you feel about the direction of polling, the reliance on horse race polling specifically or on polling more broadly, the amount of coverage polling gets these days compared to you know just a few cycles ago? Do you think these are good trends for the industry? Are you optimistic about where this is going? What's your take? Well, that's a fascinating question. Uh, I monitor it carefully. Uh, I, I might point out that polling's always come into criticism. Uh, I wrote a book about polling. Polling matters, uh, right? Polling matters, that's <laughs> right. And in so doing, I it's read almost all of doc Dr. Gallup's previous publications. And he, you know, back in the 30s and 40s, was talking about how he was having to defend polling and react to all the criticism of it for philosophic and practical reasons. So, it's not something that's brand new. I do think that we are in a cycle now where people uh, often for ill-informed reasons are deciding to um, become more critical of polling. They take some shreds of um, evidence that polling has challenges and blow those up to say, therefore, polling is, is all wrong. Uh, Frank Brunei, you know, had an essay, Why We Rely on Polling Much Too Much in This Election, uh, which is kind of something that you've heard many, many, many cycles before about relying on horse race polling and so forth. Uh, but in answer to your question, uh, I'm positive about the role that public opinion polling can play and should be playing in society. I think it's extremely important. The fundamentals are still good, and it's still important to rely on it. And I would be very... Um, What's the correct word here? I would be quite uh, opposed to some of these facile commentators, some, by the way, from the polling industry itself, uh, who kind of made a cottage industry now by running around criticizing uh, why polls are bad. And I think <laughs> we should be looking at why polls are good and how we uh, how the industry is actually approaching them. I'm reminded back in 04, you all remember, uh, people would call up when I was doing stuff and say, Polling can't be right because people are using cell phones these days. Right. I would say, duh, as if we in the industry stupidly aren't aware of that, right? <laughs> and you see that now. People say, well, polling can't work because people communicate by cell phones as if, uh, you know, we haven't thought about that. 
right? Is yet to be taken into account. So uh, I'm I'm still positive about both the role that polling should play in society philosophically, and I'm also positive about um, its reliability and validity. Well, great. Thank you so much, Frank. We we really appreciate it. I, you know, Gallup had a formative impact on me when I was younger. I was leaving college, and I guess you guys had a report that said play to your strength. And just the title of it, just the sense of it, I thought was formative to me. And it's part of the reason that I'm in polling and not in, I don't know, something else. <laughs> it was not my strength. Yeah, that's, so. yeah, that's a, a big part of our, our business has been this the research which shows that, you know, very stupidly in business, a lot of days we, we talk about trying to fix your flaws, right? Your boss calls you in and says, let's go over everything you did wrong this past year and how you have to improve all these areas. And the real point should be, what are your strengths? And let's maximize those because that's how we're going to you're going to prosper and the world will prosper. So that's great to hear that that the philosophic position made a difference in your life. Uh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. And maybe maybe it'll make a difference in some candidates lives if they're taking your business experience and applying it. Thanks so much, Frank. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Thanks. Take care. And that was Frank Newport, editor-in-chief of the Gallup Poll. I'm so glad he came on the show. I know. That was great. It's going to sound – it sounded a little Skypey, but, you know, that's just how it goes. That's okay. That's how it goes. And I love that at first I said, you have this great voice for radio. And then he says, yeah, I, I worked in broadcasting. It's I like, know. oh, yes, of course you did. You found your strength. <laughs> that's right. You did find your strength, right? Right. You found a way to connect media. He's the nicest guy. Media and polling. I know. That was great. That was really helpful. I thought that was really good. And um, another positive take, uh, optimistic take on the industry, a la Scott Keeter from Pew, but not a la Chuck Todd <laughs> from MSNBC, <laughs> which you guys should go back and listen to if you've that not already. All right. Well, let's talk about things outside the realm of 2016 briefly. Uh, so we've got the Davos confab going on. Davos World Summit. World is it the World Economic Forum? I don't know. My invitation got lost in the mail. Must have been the next, blizzard. Next year we're going to have to get our G4, Margie. I know. Fly over to. So anyhow, Davos is happening right now, which is where all of the. Uh, Fancy, smart, rich people running the world get together and hang out in Switzerland. Yes, it beats a cocktail party at the Mayflower, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's kind of the same. Uh, and the there's, so there's a study now where people were asked, can you name a CEO? Can you name just any CEO out there? Uh, and it turns out that a significant number of people cannot name the CEO and of then, any major company. And they also then push. So if you said yes, they said, OK, name one. I think that just to make sure they screened out, people are like, yeah, I can name a CEO. But then they asked, you know, well, what CEO? Who, who's the CEO you can uh, you can name? And this is done by Edelman as part of their trust barometer, which they've been doing for a really long time, for 16 years or so. They've been measuring trust, and this is just one of the latest pieces of it. They said this is deeply disturbing news. That's a quote. I mean, I, again, I kind of roll my eyes at any of these polls that are like, look how dumb people are. The world is ending. There's also this difference, which the release seems to go into more detail on, which is the difference between the more engaged folks who are following business news and news in general more closely versus everybody else. Um, and they see a growing trust gap in corporations, that trust for trust in corporations is rebounding. Uh, over the last couple – relatives to the last few years. But a lot of that comes from uh, more trust at the top um, with folks who are more, you know, more elite, spending more time studying the news. They're more likely to have this rebound in trust, which they say reflects a broader trend in income inequality. So that's how you can, I guess, thread all this stuff together. And the other point, which I guess they're not making, is sometimes CEOs get in the news for things that are not good. Now, Mark, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is not an example of that, but sometimes CEOs become notorious rather than yeah. well-known. Uh, yes. Uh, so, so the, you know, I don't view the inability to name a CEO as a problem, but I do think that it is notable that we have this total lack of trust in big institutions and... Does Donald Trump? He's technically I mean, you're a feeling CEO, the burn, right? Okay. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you know, we have a total loss in all institutions. You heard Frank Newport talk about that a little bit, but yeah, you see that, you know, not just this poll, but in lots of polls, the sense yeah. that you know, it's hard to know who to trust. Really, even tr loss of trust in each other and your fellow neighbor that seems to be dropping as well. Um, so then Nielsen 
Nielsen, as you may know, is they, uh, the outlet that sets TV ratings. They are going to start tracking discussions people have on Facebook about TV shows, which I think is great given that people use the second screen to engage with each other while they're watching TV. Yeah, this is huge. So this is something that at Echelon we focus on a lot. Um, you know, I always – my business partner Patrick and I always joke that I want Echelon to be like Gallup and he wants Echelon to be like Nielsen. And so like this story, <laughs> this episode is perfect. Um, well, so the, the problem is that, you know, the way Nielsen tracks – you know, creates ratings is in some ways a bit of a black box. Like you have, you know, you can get data from what people are watching on their set-top box uh, that certain companies will use, you know, but it's you still have the, the journaling, right? Like people saying, I am an 18-year-old woman and I watch The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Right. I mean, it's gotten a little, it's gotten more sophisticated, but there's still a great deal of consternation out there in the advertising world that, you know, you just get these ratings and that's it. Everybody's just agreed that they're right. And there are people, particularly if you're like a Viacom and you have properties like Comedy Central where you've got The Daily Show where, you know, how many people are watching it on air while it's airing versus how many people are watching like watch Trevor Noah destroy dot, dot, right. dot. Like, you know, they're still watching the content. It's a little different. How do you gauge the real influence of a show? And is there something besides ratings? Right. And there's also, I mean, this is not what this segment is about, but, you know, watching stuff in a hotel or at a bar, particularly with sports or together where you have, you know, 20 people in a room, like those, all those things some are not necessarily always easy to have reflected in the ratings, yeah, so, but play a role. So figuring out how to do social content ratings is, in, you've got Comscore, which has tried to figure out how to to do ratings for the internet, mm-hmm. um, but it's still not. You know, it's it's it, there's still a lot of work to be done. And so, but this I'm, is sort of like in, instead of having elections, we just relied on polls, and we're like, well, the polls, I guess that's who wins based solely on the yeah. polls without having an election. We're all going to just agree that this rating system is the right one. Well, so what Nielsen's going to be doing is creating social TV ratings. So it's not necessarily replacing existing ratings. They're saying like this many people were watching, but it is saying like this show is buzzier than that show. If you want to be by advertising on a really buzzy show, here's, you know, if you if you have your viral ad, right. your cat flushing a toilet ad, <laughs> put it on this show and it'll take off. Um, and so what they're going to be doing is using Twitter TV ratings. Um, they're incorporating Facebook data and as well. And so they'll rename what they have as their Twitter TV ratings into social content ratings. It is important to note that Twitter and Facebook make their data available in very different ways. And we we have dashboards at Echelon where we like Twitter data is so much easier to get, whereas Facebook just holds their data so right. close to the best. So even here, you know, Nielsen says Nielsen won't be looking directly at Facebook postings. Facebook will hoover up the data and present it to Nielsen in aggregate form. So right. this is always the challenge of trying to figure out what's going on on Facebook. Like Facebook has that data on lockdown. Right. And it is hard and expensive to get it. But yep. nonetheless. So here, if you speaking of things hard that to are get, on lockdown, <laughs> some terrible, terrible passwords. This is a um, some data released based on the most common passwords from accounts that have been hacked. I think is where this came from. Like the accounts were released, right? Not connected to anybody, but just what the top passwords were and how those changed from 2014. This is the list for 2015, and I love these because obviously there are tons of password or one, two, three, four, five. One two three four five six. One two three four five six seven. One two three four, etc. One 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 one. But there's also lots of funny ones that are on this list, like Dragon, which is not as popular as it was in 2014. Master Monkey, which I'm amazed that that's on the list. Monkey, monkey. Uh, Princess, and then uh, several Star Wars ones like Solo and Star Wars. And the word password, but where you've changed the O to a, a zero. <laughs> oh, you've really fooled the hackers there. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> and football is on the rise, but baseball is on the decline. I mean, these are pretty – these are some pretty – let me in is on the list. And I mean, even some other kinds of ways of looking at the keyboard and, you know, different angles of your including letters in a row from the keyboard. Those are on the list. So if you think you're being clever by just using like the left-hand side of your keyboard, no, you're not being clever. You're still on the list of the 25. Five worst passwords. Yeah, I had a lot of fun when I saw this list looking at my keyboard and being like, 1QAZ2WSX. Why would that? And I'm like, oh, because it's yes. if you go da- you know, down the left side and then you go up to the top again and you go down the left side. You know, like it's – that's how it works. Yeah. So pro tip, use a the an acronym of a sentence. That's what they say to do. Oh, interesting. Like you come up with a the sentence. Like, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog right. and then your password becomes – 
T Q B F blah 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 blah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I like it. I like it. So that's, um, that's what the recommendation is. Good. Which well, is I'll not any to, of these. <laughs> I'll have to change my Skype password since I got hacked over December and was spamming Margie. Yes, that's all uh, right. We survived. So, so other tech fun tech polling. Um, so YouGov asked their panelists, "What is the best invention? Um, which of the following or their other brand equivalents do you think are the most significant consumer inventions of the 21st century so far? Smartphones went out 55 percent, followed by the iPad 25 percent, Facebook at 23 percent, Skype at 20 percent, TomTom at 20 percent, which I don't think of it as TomTom anymore. I think of it at, like you've got TomTom, Garmin, um, all of the different GPS things. But now I just use the Waze app on my phone. Yeah. And it sent me a super weird way to a meeting this morning. Like – I went all around Arlington. I wonder if it had like special intel on where the snowdrifts were, but I have never used that route to get to courthouse. Alas, I digress. Um, selfie sticks. Only yeah. 1% of people. But that doesn't mean people don't like selfies and if you want to learn more. I do not even own a selfie stick despite yes. being the author of the selfie vote <laughs> where millennials are leading America and where Republic- how Republicans can keep up. That's Buy right. Buy at your local bookstore. That's right. Or online where fine books about selfies are yes. sold. Um, MSN Messenger, 3%. I think my dad must have answered this. <laughs> he uh, loves MSN but, Messenger. But this is, I guess, other <laughs> brand equivalents. Then would you count like Gchat? I don't know. And they have smartwatches, which is a product is category. There. And then you have other things which are specific things like MSN Messenger or – Netflix, HGTV. Yeah, so some of these are brand specific and others are category. Like, in, yeah. like you have smartphones, but you don't have tablets. You have iPad. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Well, maybe this needs a revision. Well, it it makes sense to me that smartphones would be the top because smartphones do half the other things that are on here. Right. Your smartphone is your Garmin now. Your smartphone is your iPod now. Your smartphone is your watch now. Your smartphone is how you take selfies. It is how you get an Uber. It is how you listen to Spotify. (laughs) Tinder gets 0%. Nobody thinks Tinder is the best invention of the 21st century. Maybe there is hope for us out there after all, Margie. There's hope for humanity. There is some hope. So key findings. Drink up. Voting is about to begin. And the easy money is on betting that this will be a crazy year. Will polls predict who wins the early contests or polls plus endorsements, ads, and conventional wisdom? We'll find out soon. It's kind of like 10 p.m. the night before Christmas. Um, And even though Facebook and Nielsen are tabulating your Facebook posts about cookie lions, trust in corporations is up. Um, Thanks so much to Frank Newport for telling us to be positive about polling, but maybe a little bit pessimistic about people's views toward government. And looking for a new password, maybe recommend the pollsters. We promise we won't <laughs> hack you. Uh, you can find us at, at the pollsters on Twitter. Individually, we are at Margie O'Mero and at K. Soltis Anderson. You can find us at thepolsters.com or on Facebook, where throughout the week we will post links to the polls and stories we think are interesting and might want to discuss on the next episode. Be sure that uh, you are not only subscribing to our show, but that you are telling your friends and posting reviews, iTunes, Stitcher. Um, we always love hearing feedback from you all. Uh, so thank you again so much. And we're so excited to talk to you all next week after votes have really been cast in Iowa. Bye. Thanks.